let's begin by talking about your work with colonial and church history. How did you begin in it, and why did it become your particular field of interest? Yes, well, it's a bit of a long story, and I'll try to compress it as much as I can. It begins in 2006. My father had recently passed away, and my mother told my wife and I, and my, my wife is a Daboenia, by the way, from Dabo, and my mother told me, all right, I'd like to take a vacation. I will pay if you two tour me around the Philippines. And we said, well, of course, no difficulty for us at all. If we're receiving a free trip, we will take you anywhere uh, you'd like to go. So we went to Bohol and uh, did the typical Bohol tourist track. And that's, you know, going to the Targiers and the Chocolate Hills and the Blood Compact Shrine and the Baklayon Church also. And in the Baklayon Church Museum, I saw these large musical manuscripts, cantorales, full of square and diamond notation Spanish era, and it just sort of stuck in my mind. Went back home, uh, back to graduate school, was about to start my uh, doctoral program in historical musicology. My advisor asked me, well, what would you like to do, study for your, I was do, uh, my master's program was on something completely different, completely unrelated to the Philippines. I said, I saw this thing in the Philippines just recently, and mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it. And I'm interested. And he says, well, I know someone who knows something about it. Put me into contact with a professor at Dartmouth College in Ivy League on the east coast of the United States. He put me in contact with Dr. Sandy Chua, professor of musicology at UST. And then I started communicating with them. Luckily enough, my university, University of California, Riverside, put on a yearly conference dealing with some aspect of music and Iberian and Latin American culture. It's called the Encuentro, uh, annual Encuentro or Encounter, and we had Encuentro Filipino coming up that year. Mm. So all of the great scholars <laughs> came to me. I didn't even have to come that's here. That's amazing. They came right to me, and, and that's how it started. And they said, come and work in the Philippines. We'll open up any door, any, uh, any kind of research you'd like to do. And so that summer, my wife and I and our newborn baby came here and went to Bohol for about a month of research. This was about what year? This would have been 2007. Mm. Yeah. So everything was pointing in that direction, it seems. It was, as I have said many times, a fortuitous serendipity <laughs> because uh, I wasn't looking for it. It was lying in wait for me instead. And I found it. Um, I didn't have to make very many difficult inquiries, and all of the major scholars came to my very place. So mm -hmm. it was really, uh, yeah, fortuitous serendipity. We can say maybe divine intervention, because uh -huh. that has created my career from then on. Providential. Very providential. That said, the actual research hasn't exactly been a stroll in the park. You found that there are particular challenges that arise in this field. Yes, there are a number of challenges to doing research like this. So the, there are a number of aspects to doing sort of musicological or music history research in the Philippines. Of course, there are the instruments that exist in parish archives, the most important, or at least the, the largest, being the pipe organs, which we will talk about, I'm sure. Also, other kinds of instruments, orchestral band instruments. Then there are musical manuscripts, such as the large uh, format cantorales that I had seen in Bohol. There are... Uh, there are many sets sort of scattered around the Philippines. And then uh, just uh, other uh, church records, such as parish financial registers, inventories, sacramental records of births, deaths, 
things that you would not think are necessarily related but do become very much related. But the difficulty, of course, is access because you have to go where they are. Mm -hmm. And where they are are usually in parish churches. They are not uh, sort of gathered together in in a large archive. Uh, Very, very rarely is that the case. So you have to sort of go around Mm -hmm. to find these sources of records. And they may be there and they may need... They may not be there. They may be incomplete. They may be heavily damaged by water, by impact damage if there's been an earthquake. Insects love to eat paper. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes the ink loves to eat the paper also. And and so it can be it can be rather difficult, and it can be somewhat dangerous in some of these places. uh, You're not necessarily in a comfortable, well-lit, climate-controlled environment. Mm-hmm. You're sometimes in a bodega or in the coro of the church, which, you know, you may need to watch your step so as not to fall through to mm-hmm. the floor of the church, and there are bats flying around your head. So those are some of the difficulties. So going and finding the sources where they are and in the condition that they are in and deciphering them as as best you can. Of course, then you have to be able to translate the documents. They're almost all in Spanish Mm -hmm. uh, or in Latin in the case of the music. Um, But uh, these are by no means, however, insurmountable Mm -hmm. um, obstacles. But you found sources. I did, yes. So I have been able to find sources really all over the Philippines. My particular... um, focus as far as sort of the region. I've worked, of course, in in Metro Manila um, area up up north to uh, San Fernando Pampanga. They have a good archive there. Uh, But most of it has been in the central and eastern Visayas, so uh, Negros Oriental, um, Cebu, Siquijor, Bohol, Leyte, northern Mindanao, Pagayan de Oro, Camiguin area. And I found just all sorts of amazing things. And really what you need to do, because so many times these these sources are either incomplete chronologically or they're incomplete because mm-hmm. of damage. It's really like you are putting together a 10,000-piece puzzle, but the pieces are scattered throughout the Philippines, and you mm-hmm. have to go and find them. And some of the pieces are missing, but we can get a fairly, in my opinion, accurate picture of sort of what parish colonial music making was like by just going out and getting all these things. Would you say that you are the first person to lay eyes on these these books, these documents in, you know, 200 years and find them important? Well, I would love to be able to say that, but it would not be true. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, some of these are the scholars who were able to come and, you know, visit me when I was still a graduate student. Perhaps in the 1990s, there was a push for scholarship of colonial era, especially the colonial era liturgical music here in the Philippines. And so those scholars who started that work, some of them American, like uh, Bill Summers at Dartmouth, mm-hmm. uh, some of them Sandy Chua at UST, uh, Father Ted Toralba, who is a, uh, a priest of the Diocese of Tagbilaran, uh, Professor Ricky Jose, until recently the archivist at UST, and others, uh, Dr. Pat Brillantes, others have, have done work like this. So I'm, I'm really standing on their shoulders. The, the idea of kind of going parish to parish all over the place, um, yeah. um, sort of not sight unseen, but with no idea whether there's anything to find or mm-hmm. not, I've made that kind of my particular specialty. You know, the 1990s may seem ancient to some, but that is actually quite recent yes, when we think about the fact that this kind of scholarship has not really been done before then. 
Why is that? I know that there has been historically some prejudice against studying colonial era material. Yes. So the Philippines is relatively unique in the fact, uh, not in the fact that it is a formerly colonized country, but that it is a formerly doubly colonized country. And so that, uh, that creates some sort of difficulties as far as history and the study of history. Historiography is the study of, of how histories are written and some of the uh, you know, political aspects of how histories are imagined and created, written, transmitted, and taught. Mm-hmm. And so you have a, a very long Spanish colonial era, and then the departure of the Spaniards after the uh, Spanish-American War, and then an American colonial period followed by, of course, the current period of Philippine independence. You know, when, when the Americans came, they were not sort of coming in on their proverbial white horse to save Filipinos from evil Spanish colonialism, some of those things they were coming to, quote, save them from, but not colonialism. They were mm-hmm. coming to replace it with a ostensibly new and improved, upgraded uh, American colonialism. And with that, so it wasn't a matter of being anti-colonial. It was a matter of being anti-Spanish. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you read many American uh, uh, American produced scholarship, even um educational materials, textbooks, and things that were intended for students in the Philippines in the first few years of American period. Yet the things they say about Spain, uh, of course, that, well, the Spanish period is so long ago, and this is from books Mm -hmm. that were written three and four years after the American period began. So, oh, it's so long ago, we can can think of it without prejudice and and study it without feeling. Um, And so this idea of devaluing and reducing the importance and the impact of the Spanish on the Philippines was a a mission, uh, was a a sort of a program, a colonial program of the sort of Mm -hmm. earlier American regime. And this sort of continues in the independence period. So if you read uh, books of scholarship, they tend to uh, reduce the impact of Spain Mm -hmm. on the Philippines. And that makes it difficult uh, to do that work because if, you know, a popular uh, conception or the conception in the academy is that Spain is relatively unimportant, doing work on the Spanish period may be not very expedient, it may Mm -hmm. be difficult to do. Mm. And might not even be authentically Filipino culture. Exactly. And that's sort of a big argument. So if we look, uh, for example, at the, um, at the cantorales. So uh, for the listeners, these are choir books. Mm-hmm. And most of us are familiar with what a choir book is, but most of us are, are familiar with a hymnal, which is a small book, you know, made of paper that, you know, you hold in your hand and flip pages. These cantorales are huge, maybe almost a meter tall and when opened up about a meter wide, made of, of calfskin, bound in wood planks with carabao, and you could put it on a lectern, and dozens, scores of people could read it at a distance because they are so large, the notes are so large. And, and so when we look at these objects, these liturgical objects that are meant to be used in, in worship and singing the different parts of the Mass, of the Liturgy of the Hours and things mm-hmm. like that, it becomes we look at that and we're like, well, this is a Spanish object. Mm -hmm. But when we look 
at the documentation, when we look in the records, you know, even such things as sort of quotidian and prosaic and everyday as books of receipts. You know, mm-hmm. I never thought I would be spending time looking at financial <laughs> registers. Mm-hmm. I'm not an accountant, but mm-hmm. but they give really valuable information and really identify these objects as more Filipino than anything else. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the music is part of this large Spanish liturgical movement, uh, liturgical musical style mm-hmm. in the Spanish world. But the books themselves, the materials were produced by Filipinos, the, some of the music was composed by Filipinos, the books were written uh, by Filipinos, uh, you know, out of materials that were grown um, or produced uh, locally. The members of the choir were Filipinos. The organist was Filipino. Um, you know, those who were receiving salaries to perform this music, members of the orchestra were all Filipino. So it's very difficult to look at these objects. You know, of course, it's being sung in a, uh, you know, a church in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. You know, so so everything kind of points to these being really obviously and signally Filipino objects, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even though it's in a colonial context. I mean, Filipinos weren't simply passively receiving the music. They were participating. They were making music. They were even writing music because some of the the music in the Cantorales is supposedly attributed to Filipino writers, even though we don't always know who they are. Right. Is that correct? Yes, and that's true. And and often with uh, liturgical music, especially early, you know, Mm -hmm. before the end of the 19th century, yeah, often people are not putting their names on things. Or sometimes there's uh, popular works. Of course, the the greatest example that I can think of here off the top of my head is one of the uh, settings of the ordinary of the mass in the uh, one of the cantorales in Baclayon Bohol is called the Misa Baclayana. It is specifically named for that parish and that parish church. So very likely was written by someone local for that particular uh, parish church and, and for their worship. Yeah, so these are objects that really belong, you know, to the place and to the people and to the, the liturgical and the religious communities. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned that uh, in your work, you've actually probably seen more ledgers, like accounting ledgers than musical scores. So this has also given you a very firm idea that a lot of money was spent Uh, In making all of this music, the cantorales, as you said, were massive and made of very costly, Mm. costly material. And uh, in the lecture that you gave, at least uh, the one that I attended at the Bamboo Organ Festival, you mentioned something about how many cows uh, (laughs) it would take (laughs) to put together one of these cantorales. Tell me a little bit more about cost, the kind of cost that went into making this music and Bring in the organs. Yes. Those were pretty expensive as well. Yes, yes. So, well, regarding the the cantoraos, yes, so they were made of local durable but expensive materials. And so um, if you you think of a sheet of paper, we can ask the question, how much does a single sheet of bond paper cost? Well, if you think of it as a single sheet, it costs essentially nothing. You know, we we don't think of it that, you know, maybe a ream of 480 sheets or whatever will (laughs) cost a certain amount of money. Um, But in these cases... Um, they're not as throwaway as a, uh, in sort of ephemeral as a modern piece of paper. These were made from skins of living beings, of living cows, and uh, just a, a, a double page known as a folio. One of my uh, colleagues uh, told me from his study that one cow would give you four folios. And most of these books, these large format cantorales, each one is about 200 folios in length. So you have to um, slaughter 50 
cows to make one book. And in the Boholano Cantorales, each of the parish churches, and there were probably at least a dozen sets that we found evidence of in Bohol, that's 200 cows. They each had four books. Wow. And, uh, you know, and this is just, you know, in one parish and then the next parish is six kilometers away and they have their own set. So, so these are expensive. These are durable items. And so they, there was obviously a cost. There was a value to having these things. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about uh, pipe organs, I mean, when you look in the sort of the history, the financial history of sort of the expenditures, the income and expenditures of a parish church, it's really interesting because you look at these bi-monthly entries, you know, entries for two months over, in some cases, 200 years at Mm -hmm. a time. And so you get this sense of almost a living and breathing entity of the church and something that feels as dead and cold as a financial ledger. But this is the life of that parish church. You know, so money, you know, they're baptizing people, burying people, marrying people. They're spending money so that, you know, on on wine for the mass, on wheat for the hosts, they're repairing the church. Uh, They're having to re-roof the church with nipas after a typhoon comes through. They're paying the parish employees. And, you know, among all these expenses, the most expensive single item would have been a pipe organ. Mm-hmm. And this was intended to beautify the church, uh, to beautify the liturgy, together with all of the other sort of liturgical elements of the church. You have, you know, the altar area, the uh, the big retablo uh, mayor with the saints, and then maybe gold gilding, and, and you know, the beautiful church structure itself. And all of these things, you know, meant to sort of heighten the sense of holiness uh, mm-hmm. and, and worship in the liturgy. But this was a valuable item. It was a very, very expensive item. You know, you look back and you see that the uh, uh, in 1824, the uh, p- the pipe organ in the church of Baclayon cost oh, something about 1,300 pesos to build. And we're like, oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's not so much, is it? 1,300 pesos. But, you know, in those days, the uh, church secretary, the parish secretary, would receive maybe two or three pesos per month mm-hmm. for being the parish secretary. So that gives you an idea of the value of a peso. And so if you're spending well over 1,000 pesos, we're talking about three to 500 years of salary for one of the parish employees. This illustrates just how expensive and valuable and valued an item this was for the members of that parish church. And of course, uh, these instruments took uh, maintenance. Of course, they took training uh, for people to play them and to maintain them. So they, these were extremely valuable items for the people as an object to assist them in worship. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about these, um, these are all, of course, uh, Spanish Baroque organs. Were there organs from the beginning, like the 16th century, or most of the organs that we have now that survive are from, say, the 18th century? What do we have? Yeah, what we have now is we have uh, the, the earliest surviving organ is uh, the one in San Agustin Church, 1810, I believe, 1810. And uh, the ones that are in Bohol and Cebu are all from the 19th century. There are a very few from the 20th century, but more and more in the 20th and even the 21st century, uh, churches and cathedral parishes have been installing 
uh, mm-hmm. newer organs, sometimes new or sometimes uh, a church may uh, close in uh, in the United States or in Europe, and then the organ is for sale or for donation even, mm-hmm. and it can be sent to the Philippines and, and uh, rebuilt. So, uh, so most of, the, yeah, the surviving instruments that we have are nearly nearly all belong to the 19th century, from 1810 to you know, 1897, the eve of the American War. So from the beginning of the 19th century, we see that organs are being built. And then you, you also mentioned in your lecture that the opening of the Suez Canal was quite a bit of a turning point in terms of the economical considerations of, of making music. So yeah, when we think you know, we in this modern age of of you know relatively fast transportation, and of course I s- say this as someone who also has to drive around the streets of Manila, and I, I wouldn't uh, c- I wouldn't consider that to be very fast transportation. But when we compare it, of course, to to you know centuries past, where the only way to get from you know one country to the other is by boat uh, or across you know great land masses, you know, think of, of, of how one would get from Spain to the Philippines, especially after the loss of, of, the, of the Spanish New World colonies, um, of Mexico and in South America. You know, you had to leave Spain, go around the Horn of Africa through the Indian Ocean until mm-hmm. you finally came through to the Philippines. It was a very long trip, especially if you were using sail. You had to do it at the right time of year when the, you know, the monsoon winds were moving. Um, so a really, really important historical event for the Philippines and really uh, for sort of international trade is the opening of the Suez Canal. So instead of, uh, and this is in the year 1869, so instead of having to sail from Spain all the way around the Horn of Africa, you just simply go to the other end of the Mediterranean and cut across, uh, you know, through Egypt uh, across, uh, you know, the peninsula there, and and then and then you're in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can cut the time in half or more. Then with the invention and improvement in steam technology, you don't have to worry about the wind. So it makes it much easier to ship things, mm-hmm. to ship things quickly, and to ship things safely from Spain or Europe in general to the Philippines and back. And so things that needed to be imported, such as, uh, you know, musical instruments um, for uh, parish orchestras. Uh, you know, a lot of string instruments were made, uh, were made locally, violins and basses and things uh, were made here in the Philippines then as now. But, uh, you know, like brass instruments, woodwind instruments, and music, you know, music, uh, published music that would, uh, printed and published music that would come from Europe, that had to come by ship. And uh, the ability for them to come quickly and uh, safely drives the cost way down. So parishes are able to greatly expand their parish orchestras with woodwind and brass instruments at a much, uh, a much cheaper uh, cost than they would have. So this really, we really see kind of a period of expansion. And also it allows for the importation of sort of pre-made organs, mm-hmm. especially from uh, Germany and a couple of uh, houses in Spain. And this is where a lot of our sort of uh, late, late 19th century, sort of last quarter of the 19th mm-hmm. century organs come from. These are pre-made organs from Spain, but that are being shipped to the Philippines, assembled, tuned, and maintained here in the Philippines by Filipino organ builders. So there is certainly enough documentary evidence to show that there was a Spanish colonial music culture, as well as an organ culture in the Philippines, at least well throughout the 19th century and even into the turn of the 20th century. And then what happened? Yes, um, 
then <laughs> that is a question. What did happen? Well, pipe organs are hard to maintain, uh, especially in a, a very humid climate with some of the uh, some of the insects that live here, of course, uh, anai or you know, termites like to eat wood, and organs are largely made of wood. And so it's difficult, it's expensive to maintain these organs. One of the consequences of the opening of the Suez Canal is now the, a relatively new instrument that has been uh, invented in Europe in the 19th century, the harmonium, um, is able to be shipped cheaply and safely. And a harmonium is, looks like a looks like a little piano, looks like a little uh, mm. upright piano. Um, but you push the pedals, which uh, blows bellows just like in an organ, and all the little pipes, um, they're actually not pipes, they're little reeds as you have in a harmonica or in a uh, accordion, and it makes different sounds. And it sounds like a harmonica and an accordion. I don't particularly like the sound, <laughs> but, uh, but mm. it, was, it, it would cost one-tenth or one-twentieth the cost of a brand-new organ. It would cost a third of the cost of even a repair to an organ. So it's very easy for parish churches to, instead of restore, rebuild, or maintain an existing pipe organ, just buy two or three harmoniums. And mm-hmm. you can put them in the barangay chapels, you can put them in the in the main church. So, so that happens. Um, there are some places where the, uh, the organs are maintained and usually maintained through the agency of, of, of one person or one family. I mean, there's a story in Argao in Cebu where their organ, which we think was built in 1816, which would make it the second oldest surviving mm-hmm. organ in the Philippines, played into the 70s. And there was one old, old man who repaired it himself, you know, just a few stops would play and, and played it. And then when he died in the 70s, sort of the organ died with him. And Mm. actually the organ was then cannibalized for parts and souvenirs. And and that kind of thing sort of happened a lot around, you know, maybe the middle part of the 20th century in general. And and then we sort of lose parts of the organ culture. But, you know, there are sort of high points. There are, of course, the people like the old organist in Argao who kept the mm-hmm. memory alive into current living memory. So people knew that this was a thing that existed. And of course, the, the most um, important exemplar of this would be the, the bamboo organ of mm-hmm. Las Piñas. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there is a real need to discuss again why this organ culture is important to us, why we should care about it and not let it die. In your work, as you've, you know, crawled through the archives and gone through all the, to all these parish churches and seen all these cantorales and seen the organs, and a lot of which fortunately have, are in, in a, a state of restoration. Mm-hmm. What has come to your mind about what we can take away from these artifacts of our Spanish colonial history? I think an important aspect of this is that it is both part of the history, but it is also part of the present, mm-hmm. because that colonial history, whether or not we like it, the sort of double colonized history, of course, the history of, of wars and disasters and epidemics and things like that have plagued us here, like it or not, it is part of the history. It is sort of what makes the Philippines the Philippines, and especially the history of devotion, the history of worship, 
the organs, the cantorales, the um, even the church structures themselves, mm-hmm. um, the santos, the retablos, all of these things, these are all objects that are, are not merely meant to be sumptuous for sort of the consumption of, of people, but to draw their eyes heavenward. I mean, this is why a church is typically tall, why there's often a painted ceiling. Um, the idea is to raise the eyes upward to think of heavenly things. Mm-hmm. And the organ does that, but with the ears, rather than simply the eyes. And so being such an important part of Philippine religious devotion historically, it's also potentially, and especially where uh, in places where the organs have been restored, and, and this you know, this started really first in Las Piñas in the, in the 1970s, but uh, uh, in Bohol and other places, uh, Cebu and, mm-hmm. and, and many other places since the late 90s up until up until now. These are objects that are being reintroduced to the communities as things that assist in devotion and worship, and as such are becoming very important, are becoming sort of exemplars of people's faith, you know, through music, through sound, through song. And so it is a very important part of the identity. And, uh, you know, if people have a desire to connect their current devotional life with the historical aspect, I mean, m- most people are worshiping in, in, in old churches. Mm-hmm. And, and the feeling you get is that you are in the same place where generations mm-hmm. of believers and, and faithful before you have worshipped, have gone through the, the major parts of their lives, were baptized, were married, were buried, and worshipped and saw and listened and sang. This sort of provides you a sense that you are part of sort of the latest member of the cloud of witnesses going off into the distant past of those who have worshipped God in this place. What this music, what the, these organs, what these churches can do is to connect us to this past. Because um, in the modern world, it's very easy to disconnect ourselves from the past. I mean, we always talk about generational gaps and generational arguments. I have teenage children. I know all about it. But seeing yourself as part of a community, not just in place, but in time, can be incredibly val- uh, valuable and something that really centers you in a place and in a community.